welcome to Tex Talks. I am Tex, and today I am talking to a multidisciplinary artist who really has done it all and makes me feel like I could do more with my life and my time, if I'm being very honest, with a striking latest album that took four years to complete and was then subjected to a bit of a rocky release because of COVID-19. He navigated an unorthodox release campaign like a pro and continues to reinforce the project by telling a very personal story. I'm, of course, talking about Zulu Mkatini. Zulu, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Much better for talking to you today. I won't lie. Uh, your career is like it's actually insane i mean it's been over a decade of you coming at the entertainment industry from various angles and totally dominating i mean there's the music there's the dancing there's fashion there's tv presenting and i feel like you've been honing these skills since you were a kid right so i'm very curious Hmm. to know where would you say the nurturing of all of this talent began you know, when you put it like how you did, it sounds like, yo, this guy knows what he's doing. He's got everything on lock. But um, as a kid, it was never planned. It was just a kid who was very, very inquisitive and a kid who was hyperactive. Um, so most of the time I was just finding things to do and try not to sleep, you know, um, just running around. If the guys were playing soccer, I'm there. If the guys are drawing i'm there and once the guys are done drawing and then another group is making music then i'll be there writing raps with them so i was just finding ways of keeping myself busy especially because my mom you know was working long hours she's she's she was a nurse so she spent a lot of time just working so i didn't want to stay at home and be bored half of the time so that's where it all basically began the interest of just you know finding things to do and being creative about it and Little did I know is that I'll then get the bug to to create more and more and more, just coming off the attention that I was getting from from people around me who believed that, yo, you can actually rap or, wow, you're actually a good dancer, you know, and I, I believed them. So that then pushed me to to pursue it a lot more and take it a lot more seriously as time progressed. I'm very, very glad that you mentioned your mom because I'm sure that, uh, you know, when you were little, a boy like you with so much energy, <laughs> it's like a constant Duracell bunny right, running around, you know, and your mother like trying to figure out ways to keep you entertained. So it's really, really good that, you know, you could keep yourself entertained. But I'm curious to know what, what was a day like in, in, in the life of 10-year-old Zulu? Because I'm picturing a mad full schedule in my mind. So I have this huge contrast, right? Um, I grew up in the township where a lot of people think like, yo, Zulu grew up in the burbs, you know, probably a well-off kid. But I grew up in the township, single parent with my sister, who was a year older than me. Um, so with that, we didn't really have the means to, to, to do much, except for the fact that we had a scholarship for, for cross country to go to quite a good school. And Amazing. a day in the life would be one just adjusting um with going waking up early in the morning you have to heat up water um to bath you know and 
get up water on a kettle, get in the bathtub, bath, try and get the early bus to school, which is probably around six o'clock in the morning, which probably takes about an hour to get to school. Um, by the time we arrive, then we're going to do a few laps in the morning before school starts um, and then shower at school, get ready for a normal day at school, um, terrorize the teachers as much as I could, you know, <laughs> just, you know, try my best to be behave. But even though I knew I had a friend of mine, well, that we just bothered everybody. Um, and then after school, we then get back to cross country, play a few sports, normally take the bus around half past four in the evening, which means getting home at like half past five, um, then play more sports with the guys around my neighborhood. That means playing soccer, if it's soccer, if it's basketball, or just finding other things to do in the in the hood. Go chill with um, grown-ups um, as they tell us stories about the neighborhood and what they got up to when they were younger. And then back home around 9 o'clock in the, at night. You know, I'd always get home pretty late, but get home late, have supper, pass out, right back at it the next day, you know. Um, so there was a lot of jam-packed stuff in the day, um, but it didn't feel like it as a kid. It just felt like me being a normal kid like everybody else. I mean, I asked you for uh, to describe what your day was like, and you really did. You really gave me like a jam-packed schedule from morning to evening, which sounds crazy for all like for a kid to be doing all of those things but like I'm wondering because you've you've got a very strong aura right a presence about you is is this something that's always been there maybe something that your mother was encouraging you to hone like growing up with people telling you you're gonna be a star like from a young age yeah there was there was a lot of pressure you know um growing up you know um firstly from my mom because she'd always tell me that um people around her always said to her, your kid is different, your kid's got something. And she felt pressure because she was just, as I said, a nurse, but she felt pressure to find what the special thing was and try and make sure that I can really hone it, as you say, and really get into it and maybe put it out to the world, whatever it was. But obviously she had to work, so she put a lot of trust in my sister to push me as much as possible. And even with friends around me, um, when we do things, I'd always like do things effortless, effortlessly, you know, and just be like, okay, you know, what are we doing? We're drawing. Okay, let's draw. But somewhere along the line, you know, my friends around me would always then push me as well and be like, yo, your stuff somehow is better than ours or your stuff can really go further, you know. And as a kid, you know, growing up around people, you never wanted to be better. You never wanted to be you know, the lead, you know, it's always like, no, let's do it as a group. Let's find a way of, of all being good, you know, and I'd always push myself back. It it only happened, I think, later on in my early twenties, where I felt brave enough and had enough courage to, to take the leap and take the lead to go. I'm now really, really pursuing, um, being the best that I can be in, in whatever it is that I do. You know, looking at your various monikers, Zulu, each of them represent a different time, a different part of you. And we're going to get to Zulu Katini much later. But I want to start with M to the Dash, right? Because that was you as a hip-hop dancer. <laughs> tell me tell me about that part of your life being a part of the hip-hop crew Genesis. Because I read that you were sponsored by international brand DC. So you guys must have been dope. One for the track, two for the price.
Yeah, yeah. So that is probably, I would say, my first child and my first baby dancing. <laughs> you know? um, so that's where we got the first kind of reaction from, from people. And that's where we kind of felt like we were in the entertainment space. You know, um, started off with just a bunch of auditions. And then, you know, You Got Served was the movie that kind of changed it all for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I think when I watched, I've probably watched that movie over 20 times. But when I watched that movie for the first time, I resonated so much and I just knew it like clicked from there. Like, this is what I want to do. I want to be on stage. I want to perform. I want to battle. I want to win and so forth. So I started that in high school where during breaks and after school, I'd have, we'd, we'd have a classroom. I even remember the, the, the room number. It was 101, um, class 101, where they, they allowed me to host people during break times and we'd have battles and we'd start dancing and, and also invite some of the rappers to come through and have freestyles during break and after school. And obviously, because people started really enjoying it, we then said, you know what, we, maybe we should start a group and, and see what we can do with this. And that's when um, Fix DC came along, where they had about 40 dancers. They had a big audition for Durban dancers, and they were taking 40 dancers to be in the group. And fortunately, then I was in that group. But, you know, we were doing rehearsals every weekend, doing battles, but, you know, there was no money there. There were no shows because nobody was going to book 40 dancers, you know. That's mm-hmm. quite a lot. So um, I remember it was myself, a guy by the name of Drum Kid, and a guy by the name of Dynasty, where we sat down. I was working part-time at a clothing store, and I called them in the store, and I was like, yo, I think we need to to create a new group with smaller numbers and maybe just select the best of the 40 and create this group called Genesis, you know. Um, and everyone agreed and that's how we branched out and started Genesis. And it was the top dancers in the fixed DC group. And from there, you know, as they say, the rest is history. When we started throwing shows on Saturdays called the Throwdown, we'd have about 3,000 kids from Durban coming to watch at Bad Sense. Yo. And the capacity was about 1,000, if I'm not mistaken, at Bad Sense or 800. But the kids would sit outside. <laughs> People, people were sitting on top of people. You know, this was way before pandemic, so that was allowed. <laughs> My fellow South Africans. <laughs> you know, but the energy was crazy. And I think that's when, you know, fixed DC, I mean, the DC uh, brand, DC Shoes, then decided to collaborate with us. And a lot of people even started thinking DC, the American clothing brand, DC stood for dance crew, you know, because of the impact that we had. Um, and then WHP found out about us. And he was like, yo, I want to travel the whole of South Africa with you guys. Um, I want to take you guys with me. And that's how we really kind of branched out into the mainstream market. That's absolutely incredible. And then which part of your persona was MT? Yeah, so it started there in the dance world where they took MT from my name, Umtoro. They took mm-hmm. MT, which was just from the dance world. And then because of Crump, you know, they found cool ways of calling 
a person's name. So it became M oh to God, the dash, you know, the crump world into <laughs> the dash. <laughs> they were just finding ways of making it cool. And then it became um, to the dash. And somewhere along the line, it was the dash. And then we transitioned to dash, you know, but it was, it was, it was done through maybe a couple of years. You know, it just slowly transitioned from MT to Dash. You know, already we're like, what, 10 minutes into this interview and already there's so much. There's so much to unpack. There's so much to talk about. But I feel like you really came onto the map as part of Hip Hop Trio Dream Team, right? Dream Team. I know, but I remember someone referring to the group as a new age TKZ, which I thought was really apt at the time. But what part of dream team if you think back on that now really stands out in your mind dream team. oh man i think our, um to be quite honest i think our early days were our glory days you know even before <laughs> even before we became national you know like the energy that the dream team had in in the city of durban you know, was unmatched. That's why even at a at an early age, people could say this is like the new TKZ because we had mm. the suburbs really messing with our music, but we had the township also really messing with us. So it was, it was just the balance between both sides, and everybody loved the music. They felt it was a true representation of the Durban sound, you know, and. I remember um, I, I, I was late in the Dream Team movement because as much as my friends were starting the group, I didn't want to join Dream Team. I wanted to get on TV now um, because the dancing was kind of over. And I was like, no, I want to get on TV. I want to present. So I was doing auditions for that. And Dream Team were already recording some songs. And they asked me to come on as a feature artist, you know, as Dash, you know, which was how we started and I recorded about three songs with them and somewhere along the line they convinced me because I did the three choruses and they were like yo we definitely feel like you should be part of the group and when we release the music we won't release it as featured we'd release it as just dream team and but you can still pursue what you want to pursue but this is how we're going to run with it just let us do how we're going to do it with dream team and you do your own thing and it just so happened that the first main release that we had just skyrocketed and then I was part of Dream Team officially <laughs> you know the way that you're talking about Dream Team now I really get the sense that you know you're a family that supports each other and that you're still homies but talk to me about reaching that point where you're like you know what I love you Dream Team but it's time for me to like go and follow my solo dream and pursue my other my other dreams and aims yeah, I'm going to try and make this one as short as possible, you know. <laughs> you don't have to. We've got as much time as you want, okay? Because uh, I was like, yo, we can be here the whole day. Because I'll then, I'll just, <laughs> we argued here, but this didn't happen, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, man. But it, it was a transition. It took time. To be quite honest, it was a matter of time. Um, because... My whole life, as I said, I've been part of groups and my whole life mm -hmm. I've always put like, you know, teamwork in front of anything. I've always believed that, you know, um, I've always saw myself standing on a podium, but standing with my team. I've never had a vision of just myself, you know. Um, but when we started the TV journey, you know, when I got my first TV show, 
Um, and the guys convinced me. They were like, yo, do it. You've always wanted to be a presenter. You wanted to be on TV, so do it. And when I started, the commitments there started just opening up more and more and more. It was like, I guess maybe the the world was waiting for me in a sense mm. because the moment we started, the response from TV, I got more shows, I got endorsements, I got gigs. I, got, I started traveling the world where I'd never been out of the country and I started getting more and more shows even out of the country, just doing um, traveling. And that allowed me to, to open up even as a person and understand myself a lot more. So that kind of helped the group grow, but it also then kind of came in between us because now I have to juggle my own personal growth, my own personal journey mm-hmm. with the group of others. And, you know, we try to make it work for a very long time. You know, um, I think it took us about a year to even finally sit down and have the conversation. As you said, it's a family wow. thing. My parents were yeah. involved. Guys' parents were involved. Our brothers, our siblings were all friends. We'd have countless of meetings of how do we make this work without feeling like we're holding back Dash, but also not feel like we, we, we're killing Dream Team, you know? So we'd mm. come up with different solutions, try implement them. And if they work, we'd proceed. If it fails, then we're like, yo, we have to sit down again and see what we can make happen, you know? And then I made the decision and I sat everybody down and I said, I think this is also unfair now um, because I can't be slowing down the chance and I can't be the guy that is constantly asking people to understand, you know. But also mm. on the other end, I think it's unfair to me because if then my journey is opening up for me, I think it's only fair that I, I arrive, you know. If my mm. blessings are calling me, I think it's only fair that I respond by at least being there. You know, and that's when I then had the conversation with the gents to say, yo, let me let me try it. Let me let me see what happens if I go by myself and see what happens there. You know, and the guys were, were supportive of that. They did feel obviously we had more legs in us, you know, to to carry on. But they were also like, it makes sense. Go for it. And that was like a tough time for me. But I didn't even get a chance to rest from the break from Dream Team because immediately after that, I had my own TV show that was flighting. It was my first own solo TV show that was centered around me. Um, I also got about three global endorsements about at that time. So I didn't even get a chance to really, you know, soak it in that I'm no longer part of Dream Team. It was just go time immediately after that, you know. How old were you while all of this was going down? I was around 27. That's when we made the decision. So this was about, yeah, I was 27 when, we, when I left. 2018 is when I started my solo journey, which probably 2018, 2019, I'd say, are the biggest years in my career, but also in my personal growth. You know, um, so many challenges, you know, starting, because Dream Team was independent. We did a lot of things independently. So even transitioning to my solo career, I carried on being independent, but now I didn't have extra hands to help me. I had to start a new team from scratch. I was staying in Joburg and my only friends that I had were dream team. So it's not like I had other friends in Joburg. So this journey, I literally had to really start it by myself, you know? So that was probably very challenging, but I loved what it did because that's how I learned how to navigate the industry by myself, how to really understand the entertainment business 
and the mm. back end of everything. And then your team aside, how did your fans react when you took on this new role? Because I know fans, sometimes they can be a little bit fickle, you know, they love you and <laughs> until you want to flex your creative muscles and do something new. But were they there supporting you from the get-go or did you have to guide them into your new chapter? Um, they were very supportive, you know, mainly because I guess the work that I delivered immediately after that, you know, spoke for itself. You know, if you didn't, if you didn't like the TV show that I was doing, it was still doing the numbers, you know, and people were enjoying it. It was something new. Um, in terms of the music, we had some of the biggest songs that year that I was featured on, and my song did my first single did crazy numbers. So at the time, you could see that a lot of people were excited about it, and everyone was happy with the transition. There was that reluctantness from a few people who felt like, yo, but you left the boys, you know. And mm. what was hard about that is because I've never been one to to speak on things on public platforms, especially when we had the breakup with Dream Team. I, I didn't take interviews that whole year, you know, because I knew that everybody wanted to speak about what happened, what, you know, did you fight, did you? And I didn't want that to be my story, so... The boys were still doing some PR runs where they would answer the questions that people were asking, but nobody was hearing anything from me except for the fact that, yo, check this link out, check this this, this show out, catch me here on the weekend. You know, I was just speaking work, 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 which I think allowed people to, to actually just take in that, okay, I guess even if we do have something to say, he doesn't really care, you know, because I only did one major interview with Slicker when I was releasing my song. And my main thing in that interview was just saying, don't let people determine who you are. You determine who you are and you just need to find who you are and then stick to it, you know, because people will love and hate you whether you do it or you don't. You know, they'll always have something to say. So it was important for me to just say, I'm going to run my journey. And for those who run with me, that's great. But those who stay here, it was great that you were with me when it started though. Hmm. Yeah, you're right when you say that people are going to think whatever they want to think. So stick to your guns. And at the end, it'll be it'll be more beneficial for you because then at least you know that you've done what you want to do, you know? Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, if we're looking at your creative timeline, right, you were also studying design at the time, but then the presenter thing starts to blow up and, you know, then you want to focus on the presenting, but the music blows up. How do you know that the choices that you were making were the right choices each time you went in a different direction? Is it just something that you were like, I'm going to throw a caution to the wind now and see if it sticks? Or is it like, I'm trusting my gut instinct and I know that I'm going in this direction because it's the right one? You know, um, I'm, I'm very spiritual you know and i do believe in destiny i do believe in you know being at the right place at the right time and i always also believe that um things will happen how they're supposed to happen you know you just have to be present now i didn't really have a crazy plan as to how i'm going to get into the industry but I would always find myself making a certain choice that would lead me and put me in the right position. 
So I've always loved art and design and drawing and painting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I only did it like even in high school, as much as my, my teachers thought I was really good, I only did it to get like great marks. You know, that's the only reason. I was just uh-huh. like, this is, this is the only reason I'm going to chase it. So even going to study further and, and study graphic design, it was mainly because I knew that art side of me, I'll stop doing it if I don't have pressure of deadlines, if I don't have someone over my shoulder saying, yo, do this, do this, do this, you know? Um, so that's that was my main reason for really pursuing graphic design, you know, even though I felt I had the capability to just start working with clients and working my own or doing my own work. Um, what made me stick it out is because I had disappointed my mom once. I believe I've disappointed my mom once in my life, right? And after I saw her disappointment, I made a decision that I'll never disappoint her again, and I'm going to do anything in my power to rectify it. And this was in matric, where I was battling and dancing day in, day out, and I didn't pass my matric. And that was when my mom was the most disappointed at me. She was like, wow. And I know it's because you were just negligent because you're a smart kid. You do well in school, so I don't know what happened with you, but she was just really disappointed. So I was like, the only way I could really rectify this is if I come back with a qualification a few years later from now so my mom can be proud and say, at least he graduated, you know, especially because none of my friends and my peers around me had done that in the neighborhood. And none of my friends and peers had done that even in my entertainment peers, you know. So I was like, no matter what happens, even if Dream Team blows up and Dream Team blew up, I think around first year, we had the number one song on radio, but I was still in varsity studying. We had shows around the nation. I was still, and I was like, I'm going to complete my course no matter what happens, just so I can put a smile on my mom's face and be like, yo, you know, I didn't fail you. We can get this done. So that was my main drive as to why I needed to qualify and, and finish my studies. I want to go back to you saying that you didn't pass matric because we have a lot of kids who listen to this podcast. And I think for a lot of them, they think that if they fail matric, their lives are over, you know, their world is coming crashing down, you know, they're they're never going to amount to anything. They're never going to get a job. And I think that it's very important for somebody like you who has made such a success of their career and their lives on multiple different different levels to explain to them that it's not the end and like that you did persevere and you know look at you now how 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 would you say you got through that period of your life uh disappointing your mother and not necessarily being in the best headspace after you didn't pass matric you know um it's funny you say that because it was As much as my mom was disappointed, I was truly disappointed at myself as well, you know. But Mm. I also sat back and looked at the year and said, what caused this result, you know? And you have to be able to critch yourself and be honest with yourself. Did I put enough work? Did I study hard enough? Was I prepared? Did I, you know? And once you become honest, then you know what to change. And for me, I sat down and I realized that, okay, I put so many other things above my studies. 
you know. And for the following year, for me to fix my studies, I'm going to put all those things in the back end. And I had to deprive myself from the things that I love, which is dancing, entertainment, design. And I was like, I'm going to focus on just fixing my maths and science. You know, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I also knew that, you know, everybody around me knows that this was more me messing up rather than me not being capable of passing, you know. Mm. So none of the people around me would definitely, like, no one said anything to me except for the looks that I got where everyone was just like, dude, you done messed up this time. You really, really messed up. (laughs) 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 And I think also it was a reminder that, you know, I'm not untouchable. You know, after moving around and feeling and believing that maybe you're the coolest kid out and you can do anything and everything whenever you want to, it doesn't work like that. And that was then reinforcing discipline, reinforcing just prioritizing what matters. And at the time, what matters, what, what mattered was me, you know, finishing my studies. So I do believe my message to to the kids out there, you know, who are doing well in school, that's great, you know, and also balance your studies with having a social life and making sure that you you also experience life itself. Life is not only about studies. And the kids who are not doing well in school, I'm saying to them, yo, put the effort there because you need to have a balance. You can't be the cool guy forever. You can't be, um, too much of anything is bad for you. So you can't just focus on what makes you happy alone, you know, life has rules, regulations and systems and you do have to at least focus on qualifying and and getting enough knowledge that can push you further because the time I spent focusing on my maths and science the year after my matric, it also gave me motivation to, to get into varsity and study because of the fact that once I tell myself I'm going to do something, I do it and I saw it in that year where it's like, no, all you have to do is just discipline yourself. And that's what pushed me to 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 get out of that slump. Not to mention my mom and sister. They were very supportive. They did remind me that it's not the end of the world. They did motivate me and say, dude, all you have to do is now just put aside some time and really just work on this thing next year. But you'll get it right. In 2017, GQ named you their best-dressed man of the moment, which is amazing. And it's also not surprising because you literally always look incredible. And along with that win, you've also been nominated for a bunch of other titles, like Sexiest Man or Style Icon. But what I want to know is which of these nominations or wins have been the biggest ego stroke for you? Be honest. Be honest. <laughs> um... To be honest, I'd definitely go for the GQ one, you know. Um, I I would believe that sexiness is very relative, you know. I believe that, you know, everybody has sex appeal. I believe it just depends on what your preference is as a person. So that is very open-ended in terms of sexiness, you know. But in terms of style... I do also believe not everybody's got style. You know, a lot of people can put clothes together. A lot of people can buy expensive brands, but not everybody's got style, you know. And that for me matters a little bit more because I've always had a liking of 
um, fashion brands, um, textiles, and so forth. So growing up, not, in, not having access to certain things and knowing that one day when I have access to buy clothes and make clothes and, and, and I'm going to go all out, you know, and for me to get recognition for that, it's just a pat on the back for a little kid who grew up in the hood and didn't have access to fresh clothes, you know, and it's like, oh, now they think I'm swaggy. That's nice. <laughs> um, so I, I do appreciate that a little bit more than maybe the other titles. Also, those other titles did kind of change maybe the way I do things now, you know, because now that we've spoken about where my journey has started in my studying design, studying clothing, putting my 10,000 10, hours in the music and dance world, I did somewhere along the line feel that people have now deviated from my craft and the work that I do and have started focusing on maybe the the looks, the personality, the and they've made somewhat maybe my brand to be more fickle than what it, it should be and what it is. And that's why the transition to Zulu Mkatini and taking the journey that I've taken is to bring back the emphasis to the work. You know, what I love about profession and what I love about GQ is that they're still focusing on my work, you know, because clothing and clothing design is still my work. It's skill set, you know. It takes a certain skill to put together those outfits or style yourself events in, events out, music videos, and, 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 and. So the other stuff, you know, it's, it's neither here or there with being sexy or being, you know, the personality of the year and being fun and funky. But if people are saying, yo, this guy has a, the most amazing music video, when we look at the film and the production and the direction quality, if we talk about his music and we listen to the messages that are there and we're looking at the mixing and the mastering and the arrangements, the choice of the messages and the topics that are there, then I get more excited when I get recognized for the work, when I get recognized for quality, when I get recognized for creativity. That for me is more exciting and appealing for me. You were involved in this campaign with Top Man called Five New Rules, where you gave five style tips. Actually, I want to call them style commandments to help you upgrade your look without necessarily having to buy new clothes, because we all know that that can be a bit costly. Mm -hmm. Can you give our listeners two, maybe three style commandments that they can follow to upgrade their look? Text Talks is becoming a fashion podcast for a second. Bear with me. Um, the first thing, if we're talking about budget, is that in order for you to become consistently stylish and have a lot of outfits, you have to buy a lot of essentials, you know, buy plain stuff. Don't buy um, items and garments that really stick out and stand out because you wear them today, people see them, and post it, and people know that jacket and it's done. You know what I mean? Whereas... If you buy essentials and you stick to your neutral colors and you buy a lot of whites, blacks, navies, grays, you are able to mix and match those as much as you want and have different combos as you go on, which then allows you to be more playful when you have that spot item and that spot 
um, shoe or whatever you want to showcase your shoe, but you have simple, basic jeans and a white tee. So the focus is on your shoes. So buy your essentials. That for me is important. Secondly, you know, um, it is really, really important for you to know your physique. You know, um, now I'm not one to limit people as to what they want to wear, but usually things look a lot better if you understand your physique. Certain things look better on short people, certain things look better on tall people, certain things look better on fit people, and certain things look better on skinny people and so forth. So you need to just understand your body type in order for you to find that combo that really suits you. You know, I think that's at top of mind. Um, last but not least, what are you getting dressed for? Stick to the theme. If you're going to the office, dress like you're going to the office. You know, if you're going to gym, dress for gym. You know, I I really think that's where certain people kind of mix it up, where there's confusion. You go to a you go into a party, but you underdressed, or you go into um, an event. Maybe not even an event. You're going to just have lunch, but you overdressed. So just bear in mind where are you going when you're getting dressed in the morning. Um, that really, really helps. So you don't find yourself sticking out like a sore thumb around people where you just miss the mark. Okay, so can you give me a definition of smart casual or your definition of smart casual? Because it really does elude me. Like, what is the definition of smart casual for a man and also for a woman? I want to make sure that I get this right and I don't screw it up. I think smart casual says it in the word. It's just a balance between um, your casual wear, which is normally street couture, and then your your smart wear, which is normally office and event wear. You know, so you'll find that um, in your smart casual for a guy, you'll wear your formal shoes, um, uh, which are like loafers, for example. You wear loafers. You wear formal pants, but then you'll wear a crew neck or a round neck or a V-neck T-shirt. That's like smart casual because you've now worn something that's casual with smart and you've found a balance. Um, And it's also very interesting. Girls can do the same with with the outfits, you know. Um, I know dresses have different departments as well. There are evening dresses, there's cocktail dresses, there's... So even there that's where you find the balance where maybe you'll wear a, an, a a cocktail dress with all stars, you know, which then makes it a bit of a smart casual look because you didn't go full on and wear formal shoes and have a, ha- a handbag or purse or whatever. You just found yourself wearing a dress with all stars, maybe close it off with a denim jacket. So, Smart casual is a thing. I think in this day and age, that's probably more convenient because in a day, people do so many different things. You go for a meeting and then after a meeting, you go for lunch. Then after lunch, you know, you want to pick up the kids. So smart casual does help you navigate your day so you don't seem overdressed and underdressed like how I was saying in my last points. Um, so talk to me about working with Platinum Group, which is like, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, retail groups in SA. Would it be safe to assume that that's where you learned everything that you needed to know about the business of retail? Because I want to talk about your clothing label now. Yeah, so um, 
I had three choices um, to study in varsity. I wanted to either do fine arts, graphic design, or fashion design. And my mom declined the other two. She said, you're not going to learn fine art because that you already do, you paint, you draw. So no, you're not spending three years studying that. And you're not going to spend three years studying fashion because it's just clothes and you buy clothes and you wear clothes. So she didn't understand those two. So she restricted me from doing those. And that's why I studied then graphic design. But I needed a job. I needed to pay my way through life. And the only way I knew was going to work at Platinum Group. So I tried about three times to, to work there. I got rejected twice and then the third time they took me. Um, but it was was important for me because at the time I felt they were the most important and influential fashion house um, in South Africa. Um, I loved all their stores, but also I just loved how they operated in terms of the people that they hired, you know, the mood in each store, the clothing that they have. They also really focused on essentials. Mm-hmm. So that was my chance to really get in there and learn about stock taking, learn about import export, learn about retail and fashion, learn about the seasons, learn about textures and patterns and, you know, all those different things. It was a chance for me to just consume as much as I can about retail, you know, and that's where I believe my conviction came into really wanting to own the biggest um, retail brand in Africa. And that's where I felt the possibilities are there, you know, because looking at that organization and looking at how they operate for me was more than inspiring. I was like, I definitely can put something like this together. I've got the clothes right. Now putting an organization like this is going to take a lot of work but I definitely think I can. So that was probably the best time of my my early 20s, just working there. Um, it was also quite weird because at the time I was studying graphic design, working at Platinum Group, and I had like a hit song rotating on radio. So I'd have customers coming to take a picture with me and then be like, yo, can you go upstairs and fetch me a size small in this t-shirt? Oh my God. (laughs) 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 So It was quite interesting, you know, but I'd make the most sales because people would come in the store and spend time with me or come see me. And then I'd just get them to buy and would be hard if you have either a crush on the artist or you admire the artist, it would be hard for you not to buy after he says, yo, by the way, we have a sale here. So do you want to just buy something? So it was quite interesting, but I enjoyed every little moment there. The, there was a guy who worked there who gave me my job. His name is Grant Mayer. He's the one that hired me on the third go. And a few years later, he helped me start up my own label when he had left Platinum, Platinum Group. And he, he headhunted me somewhere, found me, and he was like, yo, I want to help you start your own brand, especially now because your brand as, as Zulum Katini has blossomed. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for you. So let me help you out. Let me help you start it off. And, you know, the rest is history. Now we have Zulowski. 
I'm so glad that you said Solovsky before I did because I always screw up names of stuff. <laughs> I always mispronounce things. And I love how you describe Zulovsky as African lux couture, right? Because that's exactly what it is. Uh, can I, is it available to the public? Because I can't find it for sale anywhere. Where is it? No, so the pandemic really um, shifted our plans. Uh Um, In 2020, I was supposed to do things. I was supposed to launch my debut album and launch Zulovsky, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the pandemic hit. So a lot of my resources, especially financially, then just went into surviving the pandemic, you know. Um, But essentially, the the main thing about Zulovsky or the holdup has been we want to we're doing production locally and we want to have the highest quality as well, you know? So it's been just a challenge to, to, to obviously set up something like that and make sure that it's operational and can take the capacity of people. Cause you know, I, the one day I put out a two piece that I was wearing and everyone is just like, we want to get it. We want to get it. And we put out orders and we had about 600 orders that came in. And I was like, that's already too much. We, we won't be able, we won't even make it past 80 at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's too much. So we had to go back and just be like, okay, let's hold on on the clothes. But let's try and make sure that our back end, you know, is, is done right. So it's coming soon. I'm hoping to launch it um, later on this year. Mm-hmm. That's the we hope to come out in spring summer. Mm-hmm. How does it feel when you rock up to an event with like all the drip and people are like, "Oh my god, who are you wearing?" And you're like, "I'm wearing my own label. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is my own design." I'm sure that's pretty dope. It feels it feels great. Um, it, 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 it especially because I know where obviously I come from, so. It feels good to know that you finally at a place where you own your own product, you own your own attire, you know, um, especially because of the amount of work that I put in with collaborating with other brands like the Top Man brand that you spoke of um, or recently Scotch and Soda. So you, it's nice to, to contribute to other people's brands, but it feels so much better knowing that you've got something of your own. And... I'm, I'm quite excited as to where the fashion industry is at in South Africa as a whole. When you look at people like Rich Minisi, Matosa, and so forth, they've really paved the way. And I do think the world is looking at Africa right now for, for style and Definitely. for inspiration. Mm-hmm. And this is now the opportunity for Zulovsky to come out and be um, the African Zara. Hey, I love that. I absolutely love that. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about the that Chinese uh, website, Sheen, Shane. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Shane, Sheen. About, and how they're just Sheen. like Sheen, how they're churning out all of these styles. And I mean, yeah, it, I don't know. I think it's counterproductive. Do you know what I mean? Like, I would rather buy a piece that's that focuses on 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 the quality of it and not necessarily the quantity of it. Um, but yeah, text talks is definitely becoming a, a 
a fashion podcast in this episode of straying into territory that like I don't really know anything about. So, so what I think we're actually going to do is let's bring it back to the music, right? And you released your debut solo album, Spirit of Ubuntu, last year in August. And, you know, if we're comparing the lyrical content to Dream Team, when you were rapping about like fame and hype and parties to, to now, you're definitely taking a more serious, more cultural lean with this album. Talk to me about the messages mm. that you're pushing now and your the maturing of your creativity. Okay, so the two things that play a huge role here, firstly being I, I love what we were doing with Dream Team and the music that we put out at the time, but it was also current to our age. And it made a whole lot of sense to, you know, the time of it. Yo, we're young, early 20s, and we that's what we are living, you know. But I was transitioning and growing and getting to a space where I wanted to start building my legacy projects, hence why Zolovsky comes into the picture. And then hence why the music then changes. Because now the people that have always inspired me and I look at them and I go, I want to stay in the history books like a Bob Marley. I want to stay in the history books like a fellow Kuti, like a Huma Sigela. So it means that I need to step into those shoes. I need to grow up. You know, I also now want to make music that can inspire change. I also want to make music that can evoke certain emotions, you know, and I'm not saying what we were doing in Dream Team wasn't that, but you know, I wanted to attend to more current social issues that I felt in the position that I'm in, maybe, you know, I can say something that can, you know, excite change mm -hmm. or even more so bring light to something that people are maybe neglecting. So um, it started like that where when I started creating Spirit of Ubuntu, I was going through a personal change myself where I started making decisions where I was no longer drinking alcohol. And that was just a personal decision to me. Um, I stopped going out to places that I felt like uh, my presence wasn't appreciated or, you know, where I was forced or to, to, to have a certain persona that I didn't want to carry, you know. And this was just before the pandemic, you know. This was when I started four years ago, when that was happening. And I spent a lot of time with myself, reading a lot more, researching a lot more, watching a lot of documentaries. And certain thoughts were coming into my head. And I felt it was important that I put it on, on the music or put it in the music and maybe tell people, you know, how I felt about certain things and the topics that we were touching on are topics like xenophobia. Mm -hmm. We touch on topics like GBV. We touch on topics like the po politics. We touching on topics about Ubuntu, which is basically the unity that we need now way more than ever. You know, we touching on, on, on racial topics. So um, I felt that as much as we can, you know, I believe there's enough people out there who are making fun music, who are making, and I love I'm a piano. I love gold music and I think there's enough of that out there already. We need a few more artists who are brave enough to speak on what's really happening. We need a few more artists who are able to take their platform and and teach and 
you know, bring awareness. And that's what, that's driving me now more than ever. I'm not saying in three years time, I'm not going to make the the dopest dance record. (laughs) (laughs) If that comes to me, that's going to happen. But at this point, there were many things that I felt I need to get off my chest. And there's certain things that I wanted to tackle as well. Mm. You also released this album in a way that is completely your own, which kind of made it go under the radar to a certain extent. But, you know, you released it and there was very little post-release promo in terms of touring the music. But tell me about your release Mm. strategy, because if I understand it correctly, right, phase one was releasing the music. Phase two is creating visuals for every song. And then phase three will be touring the album. Explain the strategy to me a little bit more. This is the most electrifying. So basically, that was decided before the pandemic hit. Okay. You know, and then when the pandemic hit, we said we're going to wait it out. We're going to see how things go because obviously it's harder to shoot during pandemic. And most importantly, it's harder to travel and perform during pandemic. So um, we said we're going to stick to the plan because that's how the music was made. If you listen to the album, the music has um, storytelling in it. It needs visuals to match, you know. And if you listen to the music, it's very performance driven. So it needs these shows so people can truly experience what was being made here rather than um, just listening to it in the car. You can really drive to it, yes, but for you to fully experience the project, it does need the visuals and it does need the the performance, Mm -hmm. which also ties into my character where I've been known in the industry as a musician, so we made the music. But I've always had a love for art, visuals, and design, which then comes into the videos. Mm -hmm. And I love dancing and performing and being on stage, which then brings us to phase three. So in order for you to also fully experience me as an artist, you need to go through those different stages. So when we dropped the album, uh, first we waited it out just so, you know, things could like die down and calm down. And we realized that it's not happening anytime soon. So I made a, 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 an executive decision to say, yo, let's just drop it. No matter what, let's pick a date and let's drop it. You know, let's just release the music. If it finds the people, then it finds the people. And we dropped the album. And immediately when we dropped the album, I think there were about three or four um, big impactful things that happened in South Africa. Uh, we lost... Um, Shauna Ferguson, I think around the same time, rest in peace to Shauna Ferguson, who's an icon and a legend. Um, Roughly around the same time, the riots start, Mm -hmm. you know, Zuma's arrested, KZN is going, there's havoc in in, in KZN and that's my hometown. So already I have to be involved somehow in all of that. And I can't be saying, I see what's happening back home, but how about you listen to my song, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So we then had that discussion again to go, guys, we need to really, you know, simmer down. Let's stop with pushing and promoting the album, you know, until everything, you know, kind of settles down again, Mm -hmm. which then, as you said, had everything move under the radar because now we've got an album out, but we can't really speak on it, you know? Um, so then I made the decision again to go, guys, let's take a break for the festive, you know, 
allowed me to just get back into the rhythm of myself and we'll pick up everything next year, you know, and that's how it really started. So we kind of felt like we re-released the album in February where we started the PR run all over again and started promoting. So now we're planning out the tour, which we're hoping to start around June, uh, my birthday month. Um, so that's now where we're going to start releasing the dates for the performances. We've got about two, three videos in the back end that we haven't released. And we've got a full-on documentary that will take you through the past three years of Zulum Katini. Sure, that is definitely a documentary that I want to see. And, you know, you mentioning the reasons why the promo was delayed. I mean, we really went through the most last year. We also are pretty busy going through the most this year as well. I mean, we're just over a third of the way into this year. And, for, you know, for various reasons, it's felt like <laughs> it's felt like a lot. Uh, you yeah. know, wars in in in. Europe and the flooding in in your your hometown KZN, uh, but I think that a specific loss that's affected our music industry was the death of Ricky Rick. Um, and I yeah. I mention it because I know that he was your friend and and your colleague. And the day after he died, you had a performance and you took the time to hype and unite the audience in his in his memory. And what did it? What did it mean to you to be able to honor his life and legacy, you know, paying paying him a tribute through music so soon after? Jeez, you know, yes. are, you, are you guys working with the CIA or something? <laughs> Where are you guys getting all this information? It's <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> Yo, you guys, you guys. You guys are telling me things that, like, maybe I didn't even forget. You'd be like, yeah, remember on a Thursday in 2011? <laughs> um, yeah, man. Um, I think that that was very, very impactful. It was unexpected. It was it was just a shock to everybody. And I, I, I keep saying to people who speak about that moment that, you know, Ricky belongs to everyone. Mm-hmm. So I know how everyone had their own personal, you know, heartbreak and they had their own personal pain with with the loss of Ricky, you know. Um nobody could could amount to to that level where Ricky um was beyond obviously the a musician. He was beyond just being the creative. He was a figure that South Africans needed you know, about the only artist that I can even think of top of mind that was friends with everybody and everybody supported Ricky, you know. All the other artists have their different groups and clans and different, you know, whereas Ricky was fluid, you know, and you loved Ricky with or without the music. You loved Ricky with the fashion. You loved his energy. You loved everything about Ricky. So, you know, I'm glad that I sit in a position where I was able to, to tell him all those things when he was alive. Because every time I saw Ricky, I'd always hype him up and tell him like, yo, but that outfit you were wearing, you're about the only guy that's giving me problems with fashion. <laughs> or I'd call him up and I'd be like, yo, that, pop, that performance? Sure, Ricky, come on. You're making it hard for us. You know, like, because before the friendship grew, 
I was just a huge fan of Ricky. You know, I love a lot of artists in the country. I think a lot of people are doing their thing, but there are certain individuals where I'm like, this is the standard mm-hmm. and Ricky was the standard. Ricky was the benchmark, you know, where you were able to compete with him in a healthy competition by just watching him do what he does and go, I want to do it like that, if not better. Yeah. You know, and I had the luxury to work with him in, in certain campaigns or perform around him many times. So if I if I saw him, I'd tell him, I'd be like, better watch out on what I'm working on because I need to top what you just did, you know. Um, and he'd always laugh about it and say, Zulu Makataza, you hyping me. Ah, Makataza, you hyping me, man. <laughs> um, but um, I know I was as shocked as everybody when that happened. Um, and how he went out was very, you know, was heartbreaking because, you know, the first thing you ask yourself is, what could I have done to make it better? What could I have said to make it better? You always find reasons to just go, ah, oh, man. Did he feel that alone that he couldn't speak to me or this person or that person? But also just understanding the person that he is and the person that he was, you just know that he wouldn't have made a decision like that if he felt there were other options, you know, Mm -hmm. because he was always solution-based. He was always motivating, um, you know, progress and and moving forward. So I do believe it it was tough. You know, I went to the funeral. I went to... The unveiling, I went, I mean, not the unveiling, I went to the memorial service. And all those moments, you know, left everybody in disbelief. At any moment, we all felt like he's just going to walk in and say, yo, surprise, I was joking, man. That was just like a stunt, you know. Um, but rest in peace to Makado, you know. Same way I feel, rest in peace to, to DJ Dimples. DJ Dimples gave us one of the biggest records of our career and he put us um in the same studio with anati and we created a song called yaya yeah um which really really impacted you know our careers but also just the entertainment industry as a whole so to lose them back to back you know like that because it was just a week after and then it was like dj dimples was also gone it was you know so I don't know. Maybe we've we've become a little bit numb to all the bad news because we're just hearing too much of it. But we we're not processing things the way we should be. We're just not getting enough time to to heal. We're not getting enough time to process. Like as you said, while we're dealing with the losses of friends, then there's floods in Durban. And then while you're dealing with the floods in Durban, something else is gonna come up. You're just like, no man. Like when are we ever gonna just get a chance to to just soak in everything and maybe re rebuild because it's all happening very quickly. But in the wake of all of this, you know, we look to the future with hope uh, and with a silver lining always. But as we do that, tell me what is in store for Zulu for the rest of the year. Oh man. So at this point, we definitely working on releasing more videos, you know, especially completing the ones that we've shot and getting them out. The documentary is definitely coming. Um, Zulovsky, as I mentioned earlier on, we're launching that around spring. Um, I mean, yeah, spring, summer, that should come out. Um, And then right now I'm at the office as well. Um, So I usually do things in, in, in like semesters and the first three months of the year 
were really impacted or really entertainment based. You know, mm-hmm. now I'm back at the office and now I'm in the back end trying to work on just my my other ventures, you know, because as an independent artist, you have to really focus on supporting yourself and making and investing in your own dreams. So, you know, these other ventures are quite important to me. There's a there's a venue that we, we're working at opening where we're going to have live performances. We're going to have like a market type feel where you can come eat family, friends. But it's basically in Joburg, in the CB, in, 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 in a nice suburb, Hyde Park. So that is hopefully going to, we're going to do that in the next month and a half. We should open our doors. So there's, there's quite a few things happening with me and I'm excited. Um, so people must stay tuned. You know, uh, it's not that easy, but it's the journey of becoming a billionaire. You have to always keep moving and keep working on your ideas. Keep moving, keep working on your ideas. Zulu, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, I cannot wait to watch your journey unfold for the rest of the year on your way to becoming a billionaire. I have no doubt that you will. You will um, succeed. It's it's all your 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 goals and your your journey and everything learning about you, talking to you. You're so incredibly driven and I wish you the best for the rest of the year. No more pandemics, please.
of Text Talks. A huge shout out to Tom's, the only music store for always having our backs technically. Remember to follow Text Talks on all socials and subscribe and rate on whatever platforms you stream your podcasts on. Head on over to texttalks.com for all our previous episodes and remember, that's Tex with a double X. From me, your host, Tex, producers Jonathan Ings and Matthew Lewitz and research and associate producer Al Clapper. Catch you on the flip side.